Hello and welcome to Subject to Change with me, Russell Hogg. My guest today is David Rooney. He's an historian of time and he's written a book called About Time. So welcome, David, to the podcast. It's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me on, Russell. I saw, by the way, that your book was reviewed in The Times and that their main criticism was that it was too short. So I guess that must have been a pretty nice criticism to get. Not the worst criticism to have. It, it's it's a book that, that covers a lot of ground and the risk is getting bogged down in any particular area of that. And what I wanted to do was to kind of tell a broad story to help us understand what do clocks have to do with civilization and what can clocks do to help illuminate the history of civilizations. It keeps the door open for another book. You mentioned clocks there. So perhaps a good starting point would be to ask, what exactly do we mean when we say clock? I think it's quite easy to get hung up on terminology and clock specialists will have very specific definitions of what they mean by a clock. And what I wanted to do was to look much more broadly. And so my definition of a clock for the purposes of of this book and for this conversation was any human-made device with the purpose of tracking the passage of time. So I mean anything from a water clock, sundial, sand glass, time-finding telescope, clock, watch, whatever. Because I think by kind of zooming out a little bit and thinking about any technologies that have been made um, to to track the passage of time, we can start to see some patterns emerging through history. In your book, the first clock you talk about is the sundial. And you talk about that in the context of Rome. But that must have been pretty old technology by the time it got to Rome. It absolutely was. Sundials are probably about three and a half thousand years old and probably emerged from the Egyptian and Babylonian civilizations. In fact, sundials are not the oldest time-keeping technologies. Water clocks, even older than that, probably between three and a half and 4,000 years old from the same part of the world. Um, those early water clocks were very simple devices, bucket-shaped vessels, which would have a scale marked on the inside, and there'd be a hole at the bottom for the water to drip out slowly. So by the time sundials first came to ancient Rome, the first public sundial installed in Rome was in 263 BCE. Absolutely old technology, but new to the people of Rome. And what was extraordinary, I think, was to was to think through what sundials meant to the people of Rome when they arrived and whether there were any similarities with how Romans felt about their arrival with the way we have felt about clocks more recently. And do we know? Well, luckily, and I think extraordinarily, there's a quotation from not long after this, the first public, public sundial came to Rome. Um, so this is like nearly 2,200 years ago, a quotation of a playwright who made a character exclaim... The gods damn that man who first discovered the hours and who first set up a sundial here who has smashed the day into bits for poor me. And this character went on to say, you know, when I was a boy, my stomach was the only sundial, by far the best and truest compared to all of these. It used to warn me to eat, except when there was nothing. But now, he said, what there is isn't eaten unless the sun says so. And he concluded, this town is so stuffed with sundials that most people (laughs) crawl along shriveled up with hunger. And a later playwright 
described these sundials, which were mounted on tall columns in public places, and uh, described them as hateful and called for them to be torn down with crowbars. So, I mean, does that not just sound so vividly modern, that feeling that we can't, we can't go to lunch until the clock tells us to, rather than allowing us to eat when we're hungry? And if we think that that's some consequence of the Industrial Revolution, like the last 250 years or so, here's direct evidence from ancient Rome 2,200 years ago that people felt the same way. One of the things that's always puzzled me a bit about Rome is that as far as I know, they didn't divide the day up into equal hours. It all had something to do with which season it was, didn't it? When you start getting into this, the kind of the specifics of how different civilizations have, have divided up periods of time, it does get complicated and it shifts and ebbs and flows throughout history. The idea of having 24 hours in the day is ancient, probably even before mechanical devices like water clocks or sundials. Again, probably going back to the Egyptian civilization. And it was to do with stars passing overhead at night, dividing the night into roughly equal segments, and then that being reflected helpfully into the daytime. And the idea of kind of 60 minutes and 60 seconds, similarly ancient, ancient Babylonia. The idea of whether those day and night hours are equal, in other words, the same all the way through the year, or expanding and contracting as with the seasons, uh, different civilizations had a different approach. But in ancient Rome, for instance, the idea of hours was in many ways less significant than a much cruder division of the day, which might have been anything like daybreak, noon, the hour before sunset, and sunset. And so that can often be it can often be easy to conclude that timekeeping was less significant in these older civilizations because they were less finely divided. But I don't think that's fair. I think whatever the division was, however fine, and whether those hours expanded or contracted, made sense to those civilizations and was useful to those civilizations. You mentioned water clocks as being quite crude compared to sundials, but I think I picked up in your book that water clocks could be incredibly sophisticated as well, right? And this is just astonishing. And this is, this is one of the reasons why I wanted to loosen the definition of clocks, because in the West, the, the use of the word clocks tends to mean mechanical, geared mechanisms driven by falling weights. And they were first invented in Europe, probably in the third or fourth quarter of the 13th century, so about 1275. And the suggestion, therefore, is that they were the first clocks or at least the first sophisticated mechanical devices for measuring the passage of time. And what that serves to do is to entirely occlude an older tradition and an Islamic tradition in the Middle Ages of highly sophisticated mechanical devices, large-scale devices, driven by water. So water clocks had moved or had been developed from these simple bucket-shaped ancient devices to devices in the Islamic world for instance, a clock made in 1206 in um, Diyarbakir, which is in today's Turkey, uh, near its borders with Iraq and Syria. Um, a clock made for a, for, for a king, um, for, for a ruler, twice the height of a human. The most astonishingly complex device, which has the sun and the moon and the stars all moving at their proper pace. But it also had automaton figures of 
um, falcons who would drop um, pellets from their mouths over bronze gongs to sound uh, the passage of time, um, trumpeters, cymbal players and drummers who would all play their instruments with this sweet music uh, every hour that passed. An absolute extravaganza of sound, of colour and at night of light because oil lamps illuminated filled out the moon with its proper phase, which changed through the lunar month. So this, whilst it was made for a, for a king and for a palace, nevertheless similar elaborate automaton water clocks were made for mosques and for madrasas, for, for, for schools and colleges in the Islamic world, long before the Christian West invented the mechanical geared clock. And I think by thinking about all of these devices as clocks, we can start to see these themes like order and control and faith uh, um, and, and ideas like those coming through, which takes us much back in time, but importantly to other civilizations beyond the West, which has tended to write the history of horology. It's absolutely incredible to think of a clock like this, you know, what, 1200 and something? And this must be, this must be far more sophisticated than what's going on in the Christian West. I suppose maybe Byzantium could match it by this time, although, though I guess they've been uh, shattered by the Crusaders around now. But what's the purpose of a clock like this? Again, of course, complex, but the context of faith, of religion and clocks is really very significant. In the West, a couple of hundred years after these Islamic castle clocks or palace clocks, we started to see the arrival of the elaborate, huge elaborate automaton clocks in places like Strasbourg Cathedral and other places like Prague and Lübeck and all around the world. These astronomical clocks or clocks which reflected the movement of the heavenly bodies are far more complex than either simple water clocks or simple bell sounding mechanical clocks uh, for, for monasteries or whatever. These elaborate simulacra of the universe whether in the Islamic world or later in the Christian world, were strongly tied to ideas of faith. In other words, the chance to, to worship the God of heaven, the God of the universe, by observing the brilliance of the universe that he had made, a representation of that universe here on earth, kind of like a, like a production version of the prototype universe that God had made was one way of thinking about this. And for people who wanted to worship and show their devotion to Allah, to God, these devices allowed them, gave them focus and allowed them to express their, their faith um, in some very powerful ways, a means to gather people together. I can definitely see a clock like that would, <laughs> well, it would certainly gather people together. Um, in the Christian scheme of things, I've always known that they have to calculate time really in two ways. One is they need to understand dates because things like Easter, for example, they move around. So you need to understand time in quite a sophisticated way. And also you need to understand time in order to make sure that you're carrying out your prayers at exactly the right time. I'm a lot more ignorant, I guess, about the Islamic faith and whether they have something similar. In, in the Islamic faith, as the Christian faith, there are those two ends of the spectrum, if you like. Uh, the absolute daily patterns of prayer in Islam or in Christianity um, needed to be measured and made available. So that's kind of the daily, the daily patterns of prayer. But then the more calendrical 
end of things, which was whether it was the date of Easter uh, or the first sighting of the crescent moon um, for Ramadan, um, the idea of, and the more complex idea of, in many cases, either dealing with trying to connect up solar and lunar time cycles or, or choosing one or the other uh, became very significant and complex. And therefore, the, the challenge to the clockmakers was not just to make a clock which could sound the time for prayer, but which could take account of these two entirely incompatible uh, time systems, lunar and solar. And that gets us into calendrical work. Um, and certainly, as time went on, and the Christian cathedral automaton clocks, incredibly sophisticated, able to predict the dates of Easter um, in advance, as well as giving the time to the hour. And I was very interested in something you said earlier about how even back in Roman times, sundials were being used to control people. And I was sort of wondering about that because I would have thought the Romans were fairly robust lot. But then there was somewhere else in your book, I think, which talked about how the factory clock could be made to run fast or slow. And I thought, wow, that really is control. Once we, once we move into the, to the industrial period and think about time used to control working time, and which ties in, of course, with a whole complex set of changes, particularly to do with moving from agriculture to, to mills and factories, urbanisation, moving away from the land and, and the kind of the capitalist system which buys, buys your time rather than tasks, meant that the role of the clock became ever more significant if the clock was what dictated when you started and finished work. And there's, I mean, there's a very long history and a really interesting history, probably um, too long for this conversation, about who controls the time kept on the clock, which the mill owner or the factory owner would use and would often keep in view uh, for the workers to know the start and end of their shifts. Well, do say something about that, because who does control? Well, well, well this, this, this started to exercise the minds of people who who were increasingly concerned, morally concerned about the the lives of workers in the 18th and then the 19th centuries, particularly in places in, the, in, in Britain like Lancashire in the textile mills, and particularly the lives of um, young, the youngest workers, children particularly. And in the 18th and then into the 19th centuries, an, a growing slew of legislation in this country about limiting working time. And the legislation trying to come to terms with how to define which clock defined the start and end of a shift and how that clock might be prevented from being tampered with by the mill owners who wanted to extract more time out of their workers. And what's really interesting is looking at some of the debates about those legislations when actually the true practices of what went on in the mills started to come out in, in the evidence given. One example being widespread throughout the industrial um, landscape, the fact that clocks weren't visible and that workers were forbidden from carrying watches so that they could not know what time it was. And there was one remarkable um, quotation from somebody saying that anyone who tends to know too much about horology is going to be, is going to be fired because they're going to know too much about the time that's being used against them. But there was then the revelation of this astonishing technology of a type of clock, some of which have survived. I mean, I know of a handful, but there are probably many more, which were either called speed clocks 
or engine clocks. And usually they would take the form of, of a clock with two dials. One would be run like a normal clock, a pendulum clock, but the other would be connected to the machinery. So either connected to the, to the shafts that were run by the water wheel to operate all of the machinery in the mill or run by the steam engine in due course, which meant that the time which was geared to the speed of the machine shafting rather than time itself meant that if the water course was running slowly, then so would that clock, and then so would the so would that lengthen the, the shifts. People would have to work longer to make up for the loss of production. And, and even in the early 19th century, people were horrified to learn about this because it was just fraud. I mean, it was it was faking time itself. And as I say, these clocks have survived and they were used in some of the most significant factories, including the Wedgwood factory, uh, very significant in the Industrial Revolution, changing time so that time itself was being warped. I do think people are a bit unfair to the Victorians because in many ways they were incredibly progressive. You sort of have this brutal capitalism on the one hand, but then you have very strong reforming instincts. And it's interesting to see them using the clock both to control the workers, but also to control the mill owners. And, and, and I mean, this idea about control and order runs right through, I think, kind of all of the stories that I talk about and the, the entire way that I think about clocks and time is that, is, that, is that clocks of whatever form are exercises of control. And therefore, we need to think about who has the control over the time uh, on those clocks. But, but I also don't want it to, to take your point well. I don't want this to sound as if the people fatalistically accepted this top-down control from the boss. And so there's a, there's, a, there's a parallel theme, which is just as significant, which is about resistance to the tyranny of the clock, as it became known. And in many ways, the factory clock, which, which clocked you on, also clocked you off. And so clocks, while they were seen as targets for, for attack in some cases um, by workers as a symbol for the control of, the, of, their, of their boss, nevertheless, the clock was also emancipatory. It also freed you at the end of your shift. And it was unequivocal, at least even if the clock was telling you the wrong time, it was unequivocal that when the clock released you from your shift, your time was your own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. One of the things I hadn't appreciated before reading your book was just how early sophisticated clocks were appearing on the scene. So, so when did things really get going? When we think about these geared mechanisms, which became what we know as clocks, Invented in the late 13th century in Europe, miniaturized quite quickly such that pocket watches, as we know them, they were invented before pockets and originally would be pinned to clothing or hung around the neck, so arrived in kind of around about the year 1500. Um, so long before, you know, the, the 1700, 1750 of the start, if you like, of the Industrial Revolution. And they were absolutely the state of the art. So clockmaking or watchmaking, geared mechanism, was the absolute state of the art, which meant that when the Industrial Revolution did come along, when those industrialists in the 18th century, uh, um, in uh, setting up like, like Arkwright or Wedgwood or Watt or Bolton, wanted to set up factories, textile mills or steam engine factories or, or what have you, 
where would they look to get the mechanism to make the machines? Where were the first textile machines made? They were, they were made by clockmakers. And in the, so in the 18th century, as, as the Industrial Revolution revved up, the industrialists looked to the clockmaking industry and, and took the best talent from the clockmaking industry to work for them, to make their machines, to the extent actually that the clock and watchmaking trade had to complain that they were losing their best people to the industrialists and nobody was left to make clocks uh, anymore. And you can see this all the way through the kind of the convulsive changes of industrialization. So that that first phase, if you like, of, of the, the rise of the factory in the 1740s, 50s, whatever. Then in the 19th century, the rise of mass production of machines with interchangeable parts, what became known as the American system of manufacturers. The idea that whether it's guns or typewriters, whatever kind of machine, if the, par if the parts are interchangeable, you can massively increase your production. Now that goes back to guns, as is often talked about, but also clocks. So one of the very first mechanisms made with interchangeable parts was a clock, a batch of clocks in Connecticut in about 1802. And then as time went on and into the... Sorry, when you say interchangeable parts, what, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is, hitherto, the way to make a clock or a watch or a gun was that the parts would be made and then would be fettled by hand to fit. Each gun or clock would therefore be slightly different. You'd have to have a specialist craftsperson who knew how to file a bit off so that this gear runs perfectly with that pinion. What that meant was hand-fitting parts for every clock that turns off the, off the line was right. slow and it was felt that with new innovations in terms of machine tools, um, but also gauges and measurement, then if all of the parts were identical to each other with intolerances, it, you could take any gear or pinion or part from the parts bin and it would fit. So is the idea that the mass-produced clocks are maybe simpler, but they can be produced much faster? Well, the, the, the mass-produced machines with interchangeable parts were just as complex. This is, this is what was so significant. They weren't simpler. It was a new system. It was, it was this radical shift in the 19th century, which shifted attention away from these singular machines where you had to have the craftspeople, the craft skill of every particular aspect, and they wouldn't all work for you. You'd have to send out to outworkers. And once they'd done enough work they'd, to live for that week, they'd go off to the pub and you wouldn't get your, your batch of part-finished watchers back. So the idea that all of that could be brought in-house with specialist machines and gauges meant that even the most complex machines, like guns, clocks, later on, typewriters, cars, bicycles, whatever, um, it was the start of mass production rather than bulk production, if you like. And just going back, because I was intrigued what you said, the first pocket watches are around 1500. And I was wondering, how accurate are they at that time? Mechanical clocks and mechanical watches were not particularly accurate before the 17th century. And I'll say in a moment what happened in the 17th century to both clocks and watches that was a step change in their accuracy. The, the clocks from kind of the 13th century to the 17th century. I mean, by this, just before this change I'm about to talk to you about, a, a good clock, a good public clock, would probably keep time to about half an hour a day, plus or minus 30 minutes a day. 
It didn't really matter because they'd probably need to be wound up every day and they'd be set right daily at the same time using a sundial. So the sundial was used to set clocks right. Watches from about 1500 to 1675 were far less accurate than that, Um, maybe an hour a day. And what... well, the reason for both the reason for, for why both clocks and watches were were not accurate was because they didn't have any internal frequency. The device that beats to and fro, which causes the clock or the watch to tick, which causes the hands to move round, didn't have a fixed frequency. It oscillated, or rather, the frequency of oscillation would change according to the weather, the temperature, the air pressure, how well cleaned the clock was. Had the oil gummed up a little bit? Whether there was dust in the mechanism. There was no inherent frequency. What changed in the 17th century was the arrive, the introduction of the pendulum to clocks and the spiral balance spring to watches. And what that did for clocks was the pendulum has its own natural frequency. The, the, the frequency at which it ticks depends only on its length and the gravitational constant. With balance springs... Which the balance is the wheel that goes backwards and forth in a watch. When the spiral spring was attached to that, it was a restoring force which would bring that wheel back to the center each time it oscillated. And it too, because of the nature of springs, as Robert Hooke discovered in the 17th century, gave it an inherent natural frequency. And almost overnight, clocks went from being good half an hour a day to good to a minute a day. Watches not as dramatically good until the 18th century when when work elsewhere to do with the building of empires changed watchmaking. But 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 basically clocks and watch well watches before the 17th century were fashion items and after that they could become scientific devices. So what are people using watches for in the 1500s is it just some sort of expression of wealth uh, what is it? Pretty much that an absolute expression of of um of wealth and of taste and you know mechanism was highly prized in the in the 16th and early 17th centuries and so therefore you were expressing that you were connected to the to the state of the art you knew you knew watchmakers you you could afford a watch yes you had the taste to appreciate that a watch was worth having yes but also you were connected into those networks which enabled you to get one of these highly prized and fairly rare artifacts what was quite interesting was that watches were usually very heavily decorated embellished with jewels with gilded cases with enameling and so on and 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 one consequence of the shift in the 17th century to pendulum clocks and balance spring watches was that there was a very quick shift to austere cases, um, undecorated, um, it, it, for many reasons, one of which I think was to suggest this is a different device from these earlier inaccurate um, luxury items. That's really interesting. So before gentlemen are getting together to compare the beauty of their watches and later on they are getting together to compare the accuracy. Absolutely, exactly that. So I guess it's still a competition, but just using a different metric. Um, I just uh, got through reading a book, very interesting book about Magellan's expedition, where the expedition, not Magellan himself, made it all the way around the world. And one of the things I picked up in the book was the use of hourglasses. uh, And that also came up 
very much so in your book. So could you say a little bit about hourglasses? Yeah, I, I probably had the idea that hourglasses or sand glasses were from antiquity, as with water clocks and sundials. Because actually, when you think about a, a sand glass, it, it's similar in principle to a to an early water clock in that it's a vessel through which something like a fluid flows out from. And it, it's it's not clear. The historians don't agree as to when sand glasses were invented. There are still some who think that they, they do have antiquity about them, but there seems to be a, a broad consensus that they're much more recent, probably about the 11th or the 12th century. So not actually that much older than mechanical geared clocks of the 13th century. And hourglasses could have emerged either in Europe or in the Islamic world. What, why did they take so long to be developed is an interesting question. I think when you think about how the early um, water clocks were made, they were made from stone, chiselled out, fairly crude, whereas to make an hourglass, it's, it's blowing glass. It's blowing glass very carefully, and it's jointing, which actually was one of the trickiest parts, jointing two glass vessels together at their necks to make the restriction through which the the that the powder flows through. And that wasn't straightforward. It wasn't easy to do. And I think that helps explain why it was a, a more recent invention. But actually it wasn't it wasn't even the glass that was that was the most difficult. Sand glasses very rarely used sand. In fact they used all kinds of, of powders. Um, and there's a there's a gorgeous quotation from the 1390s from France which explained quite well, I think, the laboriousness of the technique of making the powder for sandglasses. So this is it in, in translation. And this was kind of from an instruction manual as to how to make a, a sandglass. It said, take the grease which comes from the sawdust of marble when those great tombs of black marble are sawn. Then boil it well in wine like a piece of meat and then skim it and then set it out to dry in the sun and then boil, skim, and dry nine times, and thus it will be good. So, I mean, this is, this. You, you would think that it was a case of gathering up some sand and putting it into the vessel, but no, here we are, nine, nine cycles of boiling this, this sawdust of marble uh, in wine, skimming it off and letting it dry. Because, of course, the challenge was that it would flow evenly and not clog or stick in the constriction in the centre of the hourglass. It's very interesting you say that because, well, we talk about the scientific method, but you just wonder how on earth did they come up with something like that unless they had a very rigorous set of experimentation and testing until they came up with exactly the right answer. And I think it's really rare to find that kind of um, description in the historical record because once you develop that knowledge yourself, it was very often the case that you would keep it to yourself because it was hard won and it gave you the, the edge. Why would you share that with anybody else? And so it's quite rare to find these real um, in-depth descriptions of, of technological practice. And as I say, I was reading this book about Magellan and the author mentioned that hourglasses were used to help fix your position. And I found that quite difficult to understand because... I mean, the accuracy of an hourglass over any extended period of time, you know, it must start to get very poor, mustn't it? So so I'm just wondering, did the author get that right or, or how did it work? Well, there were really two major uses of, of sandglasses on ships. One was to time the ship's watches, as you say, but the other was to use what became known as a log glass. 
which was a much shorter duration uh, sand glass. And it was used, if you were traveling along and you would, it was to be used with a knotted line, you would pay over the side of the vessel um, a rope which had knots tied at even length intervals. And you'd feel the knots going through your hand as it as, as the ship moved along. And the log glass was used to time the interval between the knots. And if you've got, therefore, you know the length that you've tra- you've travelled and you know the time in which that has taken place, you can work out your speed. And speed, therefore, was one of the um, variables that was fed into really quite sophisticated navigational technique before the 18th century solution of the longitude problem. You know, ships had been sailing very well across vast ocean um, expanses for centuries before that, and in many cultures other than the West, um, using this sophisticated understanding of all kinds of inputs. And the log glass was just another one of those. Oh, well, that's good to hear, because I thought maybe the author had got it wrong. So it's good to hear that actually uh, actually the book was right. Um, so... You say our glasses are quite late, around about 1200, and it's amazing, isn't it, how quickly they become a symbol, you know, the symbol of time itself. Exactly, and, and I think symbolism is a really significant, um, a really significant part of this story. If you, look at the, if you look at the technical uses to which hourglasses or sand glasses were put, um, they, were, they were very many, but they were always fairly cheap and cheerful. So whether it was timing the ship's watch or using it to find the speed, timing the length of a preacher's sermon or or a school lesson, used in the kitchen. I mean, we think of them as plastic egg timers for timing a three-minute egg, um, and they've been used in the kitchen for hundreds of years. I mean, physicians would use them to time the pulse um, of a patient. So they had many, many uses of short-duration timekeeping where the absolute time is less significant than the elapsed time. So knowing how long has happened between two events, which is elapsed time, it doesn't matter whether it's nine o'clock or four o'clock, it's an hour has passed. And, and, and they've often been thought of in horological history in that sense, which is fairly mundane timekeeper. But their role in symbolism, their role in the history of, um, of ideas and the history of, of modern thought is really significant. The oldest known depiction of a sand glass is from the year 1338, and it's from a, it's a fresco on the walls of Siena's Palazzo Publico in Italy, painted by the artist Ambrosio Lorenzetti, 1338. And it shows a sand glass, but it's a sand glass in the hand of the virtue of temperance. And temperance is looking down at this sand glass and observing that the sands are running through and that eventually those sands will run out. And when you track through the history from the 14th century through to the present, actually, of, of, this, of the symbolic role of a, of a sand glass, first of all, it was this symbol of temperance. And sorry, what do we mean by temperance, just so I'm clear? What we mean by temperance is ideas that went back to ancient Rome and were brought up again by Renaissance Italian theorists, or even earlier than that, Italian theorists, who were thinking about the right way to live, about how lives should be lived. So this is a story about virtue. And the idea that temperance, which is um, a a life of moderate self-restraint, a life without excess, grew in significance. I mean, 
before before the 14th century, temperance was one of the lower virtues, and there were other virtues which were seen as more significant. But as time went on, temperance started to become equated with time itself. In other words, like like time, temperance was about not too quickly and not too slowly. So the passage of time is just not too quick, not too slow. It has its even, steady beat. And that became equated with temperance, which is about how to live, not too fast, not too slow. In other words, not 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 in excess. And so the people who wanted to encourage temperance in the population were left with a challenge because a, a life of moderate self-restraint can't have seemed like the most exciting life to live when compared with a life lived <laughs> to the full. So how do you convince people? Well, symbolism provided an answer. And so they started explicitly to tie together temperance and time with this new device, the sand glass, which showed so vividly the passage of time and the finitude the end of time or of a lifespan. So the so the sand glass in Temperance's hand was a means of saying, live your life better now because it'll run out quite soon. That was the 14th century. By about 1400 or the 15th century, the sand glass became associated with time itself, as in father time, the symbol of father time, the winged bearded man carrying a scythe, and an hourglass. Again, the passage of time is so vividly shown in an hourglass. And then by about 1530, and then through the 16th century, the symbol went one step further, and it became associated with death itself. So the end of time, or rather the end of our time. And the idea of, of um, the hourglass as a symbol of death, an hourglass in the hands of a skeletal death, of what became known as the Dance of Death skeletons or the Dance Macabre skeletons, which had emerged following hideous pandemics in um, around the world um, a century before that. The idea that everyone will die and you don't know when your time is going to be up, no matter how high-born you are, no matter how rich you are, death will come for you in the end, set running this theme in the history of art, but also found on gravestones in windswept graveyards of the skull, the skeleton, and the hourglass, which is in the hands of death. And therefore, when those sands of time run out, he comes for you. Lest we suspect, however, that that was something from our past, the idea of the, the hourglass as a symbol exhorting us to live better lives as extinction otherwise awaits us, if we think that's from the past, just look at the symbol which you'll see on the banners or the placards or graffiti of any of the protests worldwide about species extinction or climate change. The symbol of Extinction Rebellion and other groups like it is is, is today the hourglass. I hadn't picked up that about Extinction Rebellion. That's, <laughs> oh dear. Um, anyway, look, let's go back to sundials if we can, because... I want you to talk a bit about Jai Singh and his incredible observatories, and in particular his you know, giant sundial uh, that he built. So can you talk about that a little bit, please? We need to go to the early 18th century to India, to Mughal India, and the Maharaja Sawai Jai Singh II of Jaipur in today's Rajasthan, the local king, who started out in Delhi and then founded the city of Jaipur. And what he'd built in Delhi 
and went on to build in Jaipur and then built three more smaller versions later on were huge external monumental astronomical observatories. So these were and are, as many have survived, huge campuses filled with massive, and I mean massive, masonry astronomical instruments. At Jaipur, which was built between 1732 and 1735, the centrepiece is Sundial, the time-finding Sundial, which is the largest in the world. It was then and it remains the largest Sundial in the world today. Absolutely huge. And is there any benefit to being huge or is it just I'm enjoying myself so much I'm going to make it as big as possible? Well, this gets us right to the heart of understanding why Jai Singh wanted to build these astronomical observatories. Yes, there was a benefit to making it large in the accuracy of the time that it told, because he was he was very exacting in his requirements of his builders for how to set it out. Um, it had to be aligned precisely north to south. The angle of the gnomon or the shadow indicator had to be exactly the uh, the latitude of Jaipur. And the scale on which the shadow fell, curved scales on either side, um, were so finely divided that you could tell the time with this sundial to two seconds. Dear God. Now, and so that is partly a function of size and the ability, therefore, to have a huge scale. But there was another reason and a more significant reason, I think, for making massive observatories visible for miles around. At the top of this um, sundial, which is effectively a gigantic triangular wall, the shadow of which falls onto these scales, was a roofed, it is a roofed pavilion. And there was a set of stairs that went up right to the top. And it was where the astronomers could sit. And one of those astronomers was Jai Singh himself. He was an astronomer as well as a ruler. And so the idea that that he himself, the ruler of his land, would be up there, visible literally for miles around, on top of this scientific instrument, the best anywhere in the region, an instrument which could only be made if you had the resources of the Maharaja, not just the financial resources, but the ability to get expertise, not just from his from um, his kingdom, but from around India, but actually from around the world, the Islamic world, the Christian world, as well as the Hindu world. It was an expression of power and an equation of knowledge with power. I mean, one of the reasons why people through history, why ambitious rulers through history have made astronomical observatories is because the knowledge that astronomical observation gave them was believed to equate to power on Earth. The predictive qualities, astrology very broadly defined, of astronomical observation were used to set strategies and tactics for for government or for waging war or what have you. So this equation of knowledge with power is a very old idea mm. that with knowledge comes power. And how better to express to your people that you are powerful because you have access to knowledge than something which is literally huge, literally towering over the heads of the people. And he was by no means the first ambitious ruler to make a gigantic masonry monumental astronomical observatory. One of the oldest from the year 1259 in Maraga, which is in today's uh, Iran, set there by the Mongol leader Hulagu Khan, fabled the world over. 1425 in Samarkand, the Timurid ruler Uluq Beg founded a massive astronomical observatory in today's Uzbekistan, 
the tables of observations from which were translated uh, into Latin and used in Europe, at least into the 17th and early 18th centuries, including by the British astronomer John Flamsteed. And then Paris in 1667 by Louis XIV, again, a, a huge institution towering over Paris. Greenwich in 1675, right at the top of a hill, visible for miles around. Of course, one reason is height gets you above dirt and vibration a little bit, so you get slightly better observations, but it's an expression of power, and it always has been. Regarding astrology, when did people stop believing in it as a real thing, that it, that it really did control your life down on Earth? Well, I mean, I mean, this takes me into territory that I'm not... Um, that I haven't studied greatly, but the, which is the history of astrology. But certainly for very many centuries until quite recently, astrology and what we call science went hand in hand. And, you know, when you, when you think about the, the, the key figures of the, the so-called scientific revolution, astrology was a very significant part of their lives. And, and astrology and religion went hand in hand. Everybody believed in God. Everybody believed that the heavens dictated the passage of events on Earth. And actually, of course, internally, it makes sense. Why would the movement of these astronomical bodies, which clearly affect everything from tides to crops, why wouldn't it affect events? Astrology isn't something that I've looked into a great deal, but I do know that we ignore it at our peril in understanding history. That makes perfect sense because that's how they understood the world back then. But just going back to Jai Singh for a moment, um, you said he's gathered people from the Islamic world, from from the European world, and in particular, I think the Jesuits. So, so what is it that makes the Jesuits so good at astronomy and horology and that kind of thing? Well, what Jai Singh was doing was was similar to what some of his predecessors had done in the other observatories I've mentioned, which is you show that you've got power if you've got reach. And if you can get talent from elsewhere in the world and from other cultures, other religions, um, it showed that you're powerful. And what, uh, Jai Singh um, was a Hindu ruler, but he was in Mughal India, so his um, his boss was Islamic. So he had already uh, both the Hindu and the Islamic astronomical tradition kind of on tap. But the idea of the Christian tradition in the 18th century, scholars of Indian astronomy or astronomy in India have said that Christians were all over India at that time. As you say, many of them Jesuits uh, in terms of their mission, their missionary work. And what Jai Singh used was, he therefore used the Christian contacts that he had in India already, tending to be Jesuit, but he didn't just want to bring those to Jaipur to work in his scholar's village. He wanted to use them essentially as, as agents or as brokers to go out he said, I, I long to go to Europe to drink astronomy from the tap. And he wanted to bring astronomers from Portugal, Spain, wherever the work was being done. Because, because I mean, like the network of knowledge around the world by the 18th century, of course, was highly sophisticated. The, the, the Greenwich Observatory and the Paris Observatory had been around for many decades by then. And the world wasn't tiny but it was perfectly possible to have networks around the world. It's just that things often ran a bit slower than one might think. And he knew the, he knew the value of attracting talent for the, for the quality of the astronomy that we'd done, but also for the message that it would send to his um, rivals. 
I do wonder, though, a bit. I mean, I can completely see that Jai Singh building this, to some extent, it is a statement of his power and his position in the world. But I also get the sense that this is a man who just loves this stuff. He's just a complete enthusiast, right? And I'm sure, I believe that's exactly right. And of course, trying to look for singular um, um, rationales for anything is, is folly. I think I think Jai Singh, he was... He was an astronomer as well as a ruler, and he did absolutely love it. He, he, he was fascinated by it. He understood it. He was a great mathematician, and he was an enthusiast. And, and, and also, I mentioned Uluk Beg in Samarkand in the 15th century. And similarly, Uluk Beg was a great Timurid leader, but he was also an absolute enthusiast for astronomy. And the work that he himself did, in the same way that Jai Singh himself carried out some of the observations, um, Led to the led led to the quality of the tables emerging from Samarkand, um, as with the work that emerged from Jaipur and elsewhere in India. I'm quite surprised to hear you say the Mongols are good at astronomy because, well, I remember an old quote about them, which was that anything the Mongols didn't understand they destroyed, and then it went on and they understood very little. So it seems like maybe this is a bit simplistic. Well, it was complex stuff. Hulagu Khan founded the Maragher Observatory the year after he'd sacked Baghdad and, as some say, ended the Islamic Golden Age. So after that sacking of Baghdad and the massacre of the people within, to then the next year found an astronomical observatory was as much as anything to um, assert his power among what was a fairly internecine war of succession amongst his rivals and his and his family. But his brother, Kublai Khan, um, founded an astronomical observatory in, in China when he um, uh, was seeking to oust the previous dynasty and, you know, to get rid of the last vestiges of the dynasty that he had, he had, just, um, he had just replaced. So, I mean, there are, there are many different reasons why these observatories were founded. The, the, the common threads, I think, are this expression of power through knowledge. Um, but the local circumstances in each case are very different, absolutely. In your book, you're very clear about the ways that imperialism and time are kind of bound together. And, and one of the ways is imperialism necessarily implies ocean-going travel and the problems they have fixing longitude. So could you say a little bit about that? Uh, the, the history of clock and watchmaking and the histories of empire are entirely intertwined. By empire, I mean maritime empire, particularly the European maritime empire, of kind of starting in like the 15th and 16th centuries, more and more ships going around the world for, for all sorts of reasons. Navigation was a big challenge. And whilst ships had navigated um, well, any improvement in that as the volume of ships and the speed of ships and the significance or the value of the cargo those ships held uh, was warmly welcomed. Um, so it was known right from the start that the big problem was longitude. That's finding your east-west position. Your latitude, the other measurement you need to make, was fairly easy to make on board a ship using simple angle measuring devices. Um, that's how far north or south of the equator you are. But longitude was far harder. However, the solution was very well known from the start of the 16th century, which was that because the Earth turns like a clock, clocks are the answer. The Earth rotates on its axis uh, 360 degrees in 24 hours. And so a difference of 15 degrees in longitude is equivalent 
to a difference of one hour in time. So it was simply simply the case, in theory, <laughs> that if you were on board your ship out, out of sight of land and you've sailed from a port, let's say Greenwich, if you knew the time on board your ship, local time, which you could find again fairly easily with simple angle measuring devices, or the sun when it's at its highest point is local noon, if you knew the time at Greenwich at the same instant, the difference between the two times can be calculated exactly equivalent to the difference between the two longitudes or the longitude difference between the two places. Simple equation, 15 degrees per one hour of time. So all you needed on board your ship was a clock set to Greenwich time and for it to keep time reasonably accurately throughout your voyage. And then you would compare the time you find from the sun, from the time on the clock, and the difference gives you your position east or west of Greenwich. And people knew that from the early 16th century. Now, there were two ways to do it. One was to have an actual literal clock, or the other was to use the, the stars and the moon above like the hands of a giant celestial clock. It was known from 1515, what's now called the lunar distance method, that if you can use the, the fairly rapid movements of the moon against the background of the fixed stars, and with some pretty sophisticated mathematics and really good star charts, then you can find Greenwich time on any night of the year according to measurements that you'll make between the moon and certain stars. And in both cases, however, the technology didn't exist to allow that to happen for hundreds of years. There weren't star charts accurate enough, there weren't angle measuring devices good enough, and there weren't clocks or watches that could cope with the rigours um, of a voyage and still tick accurately. And it wasn't until the, well, I mean, as time went on, kind of it became a more and more urgent and pressing problem. So the big maritime empire started throwing money at the problem and big prizes were put up by most or, or, or by all of the major maritime empires through the um, uh, 16th, 17th centuries to, for a solution to the longitude problem. But nothing came good. In Britain, in 1675, the Greenwich Observatory was founded specifically to map the stars to, as part of the lunar distance method longitude solution. But that took generations. In 1707, there was a terrible maritime disaster off the Scilly Isles, off the southwest tip of England. On, a whole fleet of ships were grounded and more people died that night than on the Titanic disaster in the 20th century. And the kind of the clamour for a solution to this longitude problem became louder and louder until 1714, when the government put up a big prize in, the, in, in Britain of £20,000, big money. And then it took until 1759, 1760, before actually both of those methods were solved together, the lunar distance and what became known as the timekeeper method. I have a feeling I'm getting in a bit of a muddle, but if you know your longitude and say, well, to use your example in South Africa, and you, and you look at the sun overhead, then can you reset your clock to Greenwich time? Certainly as time went on, then absolutely. By the, by the 19th century, time signals became widely available, which enabled you to check or reset your Harrisonian chronometer, as they became known, um, as you went on your, on your voyage, absolutely. So by the time they use the time balls, do they know the longitude? Exactly. I mean, the, the first time balls were in the 1830s, um, after 
astronomical observatories have been set up in places like the Cape of Good Hope. So the Cape of Good Hope observatory set up in the 1820s um, started giving out time signals using like a pistol flash um, and then a time ball from 1833. So the observatory came first, which gave you access to the very best time finding. Before that, then the infrastructure wasn't there. So so I guess it's a story about, and, and I'm trying to, to, to suggest this um, in the book, it's kind of this very long process of building a huge global infrastructure of, of time and therefore of space to serve the imperial projects of Europe. The, 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 the farther you want to go, and the more, the more accurately or the faster or the more densely packed the ships, the better your navigation needs to be. And what grew up slowly was this infrastructure of time signals and astronomical observatories and of chronometer depots and testing stations and of service routes. You know, you know when they're put into a port and one of your chronometers playing up, it somehow has to get back to a company or a maker that knows how to look after it. Well, that might be two continents away. And so this whole infrastructure really started to interest me that once you start to unpick the idea of John Harrison invented the marine chronometer and solved the navigation problem of longitude, that actually it took decades for this infrastructure to grow to enable that to become realistic around the world. So Britain has the first really accurate clock, thanks to Harrison, and it's got the biggest navy. Is that how we got the world to adopt Greenwich Mean Time? Well, I mean... A lot of what I'm interested in, in fact, everything of what I'm interested in is about politics with a very small P because politics is just people engaging with other people and, and, and trying to get, get an edge or to get ahead. And so the story of the standardization of time and of space and therefore why it's Greenwich Mean Time and the Greenwich Meridian and not Paris or Washington or anybody else is a story of politics as much as it is of technology. The very quick potted history of, of that is um, individual countries' time and mapping started to become standardised in the 19th century. Britain started to standardise its time from the 1840s and legislated for Greenwich to be the standard time for Britain in 1880, at the same time that Dublin time was legislated for Ireland. Um, America had introduced time zones because, of course, it's a much bigger territory by that point, And many other countries were doing the same. As the world was globalising towards the end of the 19th century, a single time or time system and measurement system of longitude for the world was deemed of value. And in 1884, the world came together at a conference, a diplomatic conference in Washington, D.C., the International Meridian Conference. Scientists weren't present. These were, these were politicians and diplomats. And for a couple of weeks, they discussed all kinds of questions, but one of which was, we need to pick a single prime meridian for the world and various other things to do with um, when does the day start? Is it an astronomical day or a civil day? And all kinds of interesting questions. And, and the, the proceedings are fascinating. But the consequence was Greenwich was selected to be the prime meridian of the world. And... There were many other candidates. The, the, the usual argument as to why Greenwich got it was because most, I think something like three quarters of the charts used by ships on the seas were based on 
the Greenwich Meridian because the London chart makers were the, the most prolific. And therefore, it would inconvenience the fewest people um, to use Greenwich because that infrastructure, that charting infrastructure was already kind of tied in, locked on to this to this Greenwich Meridian. You're right to say that the French delegates um, resisted this um, very strongly. In fact, only agreed to abstain from the vote. They wouldn't vote for it. They would, they would have voted against it. They only agreed to abstain from the vote by getting a commitment from all the delegates that um, decimal time or metric time uh, would be considered because their great metric project um, was going really strong and time is kind of one of the last bastions of measurement that resisted um, metrication. That enabled them to abstain I mean, as soon as the conference was over, everybody said, great idea, we'll definitely think about it. We'll definitely give it lots of thought. And then nothing ever happened. Um, and, and France effectively refused to accept the um, decision of the conference for many years and kept Paris meantime as their own time. In fact, it was only in the 20th century when um, the French were the first um, in Europe to broadcast time by wireless, actually from the Eiffel Tower um, in the first decade of the 20th century, that the world effectively said the time we want is Greenwich time. And so Paris decided, uh, France decided reluctantly to, to fall in line, but they um, refused to call Greenwich Mean Time Greenwich Mean Time. So they did use Greenwich Mean Time, but they renamed it Paris Mean Time retarded by nine minutes and 21 seconds. And that was the legal definition of time in France until the 1970s, when the world abandoned Greenwich Mean Time for time and went to what's called Coordinated Universal Time, UTC. And it's coordinated for the world um, in a laboratory just outside Paris. So they got that in the end. So the story about why is it Greenwich Mean Time and why is it the Greenwich Meridian is absolutely a story of politics. And it was a story about empire. It was a story. Why, why were the London chart makers so prolific? Because the British Empire, the British maritime project had been so long standing and so powerful and so successful in taking over so much of the world by 1884. I suppose you have a you have a very powerful navy and it's a time of peace. So you've got to find something for them to do. So maybe one of the obvious things for them to do is to go out and make charts. I mean, you know, what else are you going to do with them? Absolutely. I mean, the survey work of, of, of the Admiralty through the 19th century was astonishing. And of, and of course, part of the reaction of the French against this was that it felt like an imperialist act of Britain literally taking over um, the measurement of the world, that every clock on earth would march to the beat of a British clock. And literally, I mean, I mean, I talk in the book about resistance quite a lot. And, and there's a there's an event which happened at the Greenwich Observatory, 10 years, exactly 10 years after that Meridian conference by a French anarchist, um, who um, took a bomb to the Royal Observatory. I mean, he tripped as he was priming it and fell on it and killed himself and only himself in the process. But the conclusion that one must come to is that he was about to throw that bomb onto the clock at the gatepost of the Greenwich Observatory, which is the first clock in the world to show GMT, official Greenwich Mean Time, to the public, and to symbolically, therefore, to strike against this imperialist act of Greenwich Time. I seem to remember a book 
the secret agent by was it Conrad? Um, did that have anything to do with Greenwich? The secret agent is is a fictionalized account of the real events that I just described. And Joseph Conrad was was well acquainted with the anarchist network, so he was very well aware that in 1894, when Marshal Bourdin, the French, the young French anarchist, blew himself up violently in a very gruesome fashion and very publicly just outside the Royal Observatory, which made international headlines for months and months and months because it was seen as this terrorist activity on British soil of people coming into our culture that do not agree with it and trying to destroy it from within. So there are some parallels, I think, with, with the rhetoric of more recent times. And Joseph Conrad was very well aware of all of this and used it in a fictional account, which 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 enabled that story to kept to be retold and retold uh, throughout um, the twentieth century. And this and this is the power of uh, this is what the French knew in eighteen eighty four that the the clocks national clocks are symbolic and they're symbolic of nationalism they're symbolic of national identity. If you think about the um, Big Ben. And Brexit very recently, the idea that a national identity can be poured into an actual clock, that the clock, Big Ben, stands for Britishness, stands for Britons, the British people. And because it was stopped for refurbishment the moment that Britain left the European Union, there were these, in my view, ridiculous debates in Parliament that which were reported in the press the day afterwards as Big Ben must bong for Brexit, that a clock must sound this momentous event and it must be the national clock, said Marc Francois in the Houses of Parliament. So these idea that clocks are these, these kind of value-free scientific artefacts is folly. And the poor old French, they try to get metric time and, and that's a bit of a flop. Um, was it fundamentally doomed? Uh, I mean, for example, the Babylonians, they have this 60 seconds, 60 minutes, and so on. Is is that fundamental to the nature of time, or is that just chance? It, it's a really, really interesting question. There's, um, there's nothing natural about 24 hours in the day, 60 minutes in the hour, and 60 seconds in the minute. The only natural time cycles are the day, the rotation of the Earth, the year, orbit of the Earth around the Sun, and some lunar um, cycles, like the lunar months and phase and so on. So hours, minutes, and seconds are absolutely artificial. They're entirely human-made. The reasons why 12 and 24 were selected by the Egyptians were to do with their astronomical systems, and 12 is a good number, mathematically. Um, the Babylonians selected um, 60 because base 60 is an even better number mathematically. They were used to manipulate in quantities using base 60 because it has so many divisors. Um, and because those, because that singular system got locked in so early in the history of civilization, 4,000 years ago, and it's never really had any competitors until the 18th century in the French Revolution, when decimal time was used for a few years, and you can still find decimal clocks and watches from that period. Really? That, that, yeah, 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 with t 10 hours and 100 minutes. And, and 
unlike other measurement systems like length measurement or temperature measurement, where there are more than one system in place, and therefore there's political arguments about whether it's Fahrenheit or Celsius, whether it's meters or feet or what have you, there hasn't really been anything like that for time until this kind of late period in history when this decimal in my view, just came too late for it to resist the locked-in system. There are still people who, there's still, I think, a decimal time society in this country. I think it's a population of one. Um, (laughs) And when you think about the scientific SI system of measurements, I mean, mathematically and scientifically, it would probably make a lot of sense for time to fall in. But science is only part of culture and these cultural systems are hard wired i think into our societies a question i'd really like to ask is we've got british gmt um we've got the finest clock ever made by harrison um we've got the industrial revolution so we've got incredible skills so my question is where's the british watch and clock industry because because I can't see it? A really good question. Um, the British clock and watch industry is coming back, actually. There is a renaissance. We can touch on that, but after a very long absence. In the 18th century, at the start of that industrial revolution, the British clock and watchmakers were at the top of their game and they were the most prolific in the world. Pretty much. I'm simplifying the story. But in the 18th century, the the world's biggest clock and watchmakers were the Brits. Very quickly, things started to change around the world as we moved into the 19th century. And the, and the question to ask is, why didn't Britain notice and pay attention and do something about it? Some of those changes were technical. The idea of... Um, which the Swiss got very early on, which was the idea of um, standardization of, let's talk about watches, standardization of watch design, um, standardization of measurement systems, rather than having every every maker with their own bespoke measurement system, um, let's standardize, whether that's metric or whatever. Simplification, but also technical education. Uh, um, the elementary education system in Switzerland gave every boy and girl not only a very strong technical education, but also an artistic education, which meant that they had, as they described it, the taste to make watches which people wanted to buy, beautiful watches, as well as functional watches. And the Swiss really organised their industry um, along those lines, which enabled them to simplify watch manufacture. Um, because they employed uh, girls and women in the workforce, they doubled the available workforce. A lot of the work was simpler because of standardization, which meant that there were even more people available to do that work, which meant that they were able to get their numbers way up and they started to compete with the British watchmakers. Then, you know, the French, other European countries, and then particularly America. Now, I've already mentioned the American system of manufacturers, this idea of mass production using specialist machine tools and interchangeable parts. Well, that started flowing through the 19th century, and as the 19th century went on, I mean, the, the number of watches that you could, that were, that were flooding in from America and clocks was just blowing the Brits out of the water. 
Some of them were high quality, some of them were cheap and cheerful, but they worked. And all the while, the British horological industry, from the earliest 19th century through to the end of that century, refused to accept that people wouldn't buy their watches or their clocks. They refused to see, it was protectionism, they refused to, to see, why should we change because what we do is successful. We've always had a market for our clocks and watches. We make the best. So why would we change? And there were a few people, a few pockets of people where they were looking at what was going on in Switzerland and in America and in France and saying, come on, you need to move with the times, otherwise you're going to be dead in the water. One example was John Bennett, who I talk about in the book, who was a, a widely known uh, watch retailer, clock and watch retailer in London, who the horological industry hated because he would import Swiss and American clocks and watches and sell them because they were the best for his clients. And he said, well, if you, if you Brits aren't making them, what do you expect me to do for my customers? I'm not going to force them to buy expensive, outdated items just because you don't want to change your industry. So through the 19th century, the Brits just head in the sand is the answer. They refused to, to innovate, uh, largely, broadly speaking. And so they were just completely taken over. And then by the end of the century, they'd just given up. I mean, nobody was buying their stuff. If you wanted a clock, you would buy a clock from America. If you were a farmhand in Wiltshire, earning very little but some, you can never afford a British clock. You might just about be able to afford an American shelf clock, mass-produced, interchangeable parts that you might proudly display on your mantelpiece in, the, in, your, in your home. And watches similarly, you know, when you could buy a watch for a dollar, it would keep time. Or you could buy a nice Swiss watch, like beautifully enameled and jeweled for half the price or whatever. Why wouldn't you? So by the 20th century, the British horological industry effectively had, had shot itself in the foot. But interestingly, there has been this renaissance. I mean, those, those other countries... Um, through the 20th century had their own challenges, um, particularly from uh, Asian economies with the rise of mass production um, in places like Japan. I mean, the Seiko um, company, Seikosha, and the Seiko company started manufacturing mechanical clocks in the early 20th century. The quartz revolution, as it's called, in the early 1970s, very quickly meant that those Asian economies who were making quartz watches very, very cheaply, uh, who would buy a mechanical watch anymore? And it was believed that mechanical watchmaking in particular was dead, not just in, it had long been dead in Britain, but it was dead in Switzerland, it was thought. But in fact, then there was a renaissance, which is still playing through around the world. And there's a strong pocket of it in, in, in Britain, of mechanical high-end watchmaking, and the skills that go with that that are skills that you would, would be familiar to the 18th century watchmakers, the really finely worn hand skills, um, are coming back. But of course, uh, an expensive and finely made mechanical watch, it's just a different machine from a cheap quartz watch or an Apple smart watch. They're just doing different things. And I think what, what the industries are finding is that both are able to coexist. I don't know if you've ever visited Japan, but, but if you go, I really recommend the Seiko Museum. It's an absolute pleasure of a place, uh, and it's got a ton of stuff I know would really interest you. And actually, uh, when I visited there, that was what inspired me to get my Grand Seiko watch, 
which was absolutely horribly expensive, but well, you know, it's the only bit of jewelry I own and I, and I don't regret it at all. Um, but if you could get any watch in the world, what would you, what would you get? <laughs> That's a really good question. I mean, I'm a huge fan of Seiko, like you. Um, I don't have I don't have a Grand Seiko yet. Uh, I think Grand Seiko are very, very interesting. Um, Simon Winchester wrote a book about precision, uh, where he too visited the Seiko factory and, and, and met the, the Grand Seiko watchmakers. But even Seiko's cheap and cheerful mechanical watches, which you can get on, you know, online for 150 bucks, um, Automatic hand, uh, automatic wound mechanical watches. That is my beta watch, uh, which I wear everywhere. It, it's a lovely sports watch that I can hack around in. I guess I'm I'm as attuned as 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 everybody else who likes watches to the messages that watches give out when you wear them. So I have an Apple smartwatch, and I think it's fabulous. I have an Omega Speedmaster, which I got soon after. Um, working on an exhibition about the moon and the anniversary of the, the first moon landing. And I think that's wonderful as well. And then there are watches made. There's a company called Charles Frodsham uh, in Sussex that I talk about in the book a little bit. And, and I know them well and they're great friends because they're an old 19th century chronometer making firm who used to supply chronometers to the Admiralty. They supplied um, the finest clocks to the astronomical observatories around the world. And in the 20th century, moved into other things in the horological world. Well, they've been making this wristwatch now for a few years. It's now on the market, which they make kind of all the parts in their in their factory in, in Sussex. And you meet the makers, and the makers are young as well as old. And they're all, there's a real quiet sense of, of pride about the fact that they're bringing these skills to watches which people want to buy in the 21st century, which are skills which we've developed in the 18th, 19th and 20th. Well, let's hope uh, Seiko have been listening attentively and maybe you can pick up some sponsorship and uh, a Grand Seiko may well be in the post to you even as we speak. I can make my address available. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Luke, David, that's been absolutely terrific and thank you so much. I've enjoyed myself enormously and uh, and i've learned an absolute ton so so thank you so much for uh for coming on the podcast that's that's been great well thank you very much indeed for for having me on i've enjoyed it very much too russell thank you well that's the end of today's show i hope you enjoyed listening and if you did do please join me for the next episode and if you have the time please do recommend me to your friends and a share on social media and maybe a review on itunes really helps my guests get the audience they deserve Goodbye for now.